0: You're listening to the Reversing Climate Change Podcast by Nori, the world's first carbon removal marketplace. Here are your hosts, Ross Kenyon and Christoph Jospay.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Reversing Climate Change Podcast with Nori. I'm Ross Kenyon here with Christoph Jospay and Paul Gamble. We're in the Nori office. This is episode 42. So, obligatory introductory joke here. We're gonna find out the answer to life, the universe, and everything. We got it out of the way, nice and early.
2: That was one of my favorite books growing up.
1: Yeah, it's a good one, actually. Stephen Fry reads them, and you can listen to them. Well, well, worth your time. And I think Martin Freeman ends up doing the rest of them. He Be- was in the movies too, right? I think. So. I don't think I really saw the movies. Or uh, wasn't there just one? Was there multiple? There's just the, the Hitchhiker's Guide. I don't know. Well, I don't know. I never, I never saw it. I don't think.
2: I'm feeling very intergalactic. I just finished Earth and Human Hands by David Grinspoon over the weekend. Yeah, that
1: that is a house favorite around here. We love that book. You should check it out sometime. He reads it on Audible as well. If you'd like to get through it, want to learn about climate change from a planetary science perspective, well worth your time. Today, we have four star designers against their will, <laughs> twisted their arms <laughs> been, like, <laughs> been like, all right, you have to explain how this works because design is one of those things that once you see it, you can't unsee it, uh, you realize how many choices are made for you in your everyday life, whether it's in apps or other places that affect how you think about products, how you can use them. And learning more about this has definitely uh, helped me career-wise and also released me from some of the baggage of feeling bad when things don't work the way I plan. Like, uh, what's God, I always forget. Is it? What's the? The Design of Everyday Things. Design of Everyday Things. That book is great. Also, Yeah. And there's a bit in there about if you've ever tried to open a door and you pushed it or pulled it the wrong direction and felt like an idiot, it's not your fault. You can forgive yourself. You can move on. And, uh, since then I've been thinking about design and and I've sat in on some of these meetings that, that y'all host here and the amount of thought that goes into every single screen, every single action that takes place on the Nori platform as it's being built is really stupendous. And this happens for probably every app that you have ever used slash will ever use. Not, not everyone, unfortunately. Not, not, maybe (laughs) not nearly. Yeah. I've definitely used some apps where they could (laughs) have, they rushed that one to market. But yeah, let's uh, let's get these introductions going. Well, did you want to add anything, Christoph? Or are we going to let them do it?
2: I think you just about covered it in that very nice soliloquy, Ross.
1: Oh, thank you. Ross's musings on design. I'm, I'm very qualified to do so.
2: So let's start with you, Jacob. Um, sitting across from us, we've got both Jacob Farney and Michael Leggett. We'd like to give each one of them a chance to introduce themselves and talk a little bit about what they do at Nori.
0: Yeah, thanks. So I'm a principal product designer at Nori. Basically, what that means is I do a lot of the more kind of like nitty gritty UI stuff, but also user research. Um, it's kind of a generalist role.
1: What's, a, what's UI? What are, can you give us a little... A oh, little sure. Story? Is
0: that a rock band? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's really famous rock band. <laughs> no, uh, UI stands for user interface, um, which is people say UI because it's, it's easier. Um,
1: <laughs> yeah, it's not not the most graceful, tiny little turn. I mean, it's a little harder.
0: Yeah. So at Nori, there's a product that that we're making, and that product needs uh, some type of face for people to interact with. And we need to figure out uh, what those workflows look like. Who's using this tool? What are they trying to accomplish? How are we solving problems for them? Um, so that's kind of the general overview of of my role here and and what I do. So you're from Indiana. Yeah, and uh, you... I don't know if that's the, is that the Rust Belt? Am I in the Rust, the Rust Belt or the?
1: I'm not sure. Well, is there really a city there that's post-industrial like Pittsburgh or Buffalo or Rochester? Or... Indianapolis, right? is it... uh,
2: yeah, Indianapolis. Well, yeah. Was that
1: ever a big manufacturing hub? I'm not, I'm not even sure.
2: <laughs> You're derailing my question, Ross. Yeah, what was the question? <laughs> I, well, okay. So here here we are at Nori, we're developing a methodology so that people sequestering carbon dioxide in their soils um, are able to get paid using our platform. And in Indiana, I believe there are a whole lot of people doing that activity already. You've got a lot of farmers. And what is interesting to me is, I bet before you started working for Nori, you didn't think you'd be designing a product that would be helping farmers potentially monetize carbon sequestration in their soils. And I bring this up because there's this buzzword that I hear from designers called human-centered design. And what That's a multiple-part question, we like to ask many questions at once. <laughs> One, like, me, yeah, and now Ross Ross is doing it as well. <laughs> My first question is, what, what do you think about when it comes to human-centered design to do any of your experiences growing up in Indiana inform things that you're thinking about? Three, <laughs>
3: don't just
0: stop. No, stop. Okay, let's let's, stop. Let's, 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 let's improve do the design
2: of this
3: question. <laughs> yeah. Let's,
0: um, let's start there. H, yeah, so human-centered design, HCI, I, I can take a stab at that. Um, so I think the easiest way to understand what that means, it's a very kind of like feel-good label to describe kind of like what people do or a, a discipline. Um, the opposite of that, from my perspective, is technology-centered design. Um, and I think the key difference is technology-centered design. You say, hey, I have a cool thing. Let's go find out a cool way to use this cool thing and just see what sticks. Uh, human-centered design is who are the people? How can I empathize with who's trying to kind of accomplish a goal or what is their task? And find an appropriate solution for that person.
1: The the latter, technology-centered design, sounds like a lot of blockchain projects I've seen too, where they are not built for the average user. I don't feel much empathy interacting with the blockchain (laughs) on a regular basis.
3: Yeah, I'm going to just jump in. I think that there's interesting, uh, I think it's Jared Spool, who's a a famous uh, researcher, does a lot of talks. And he talked about kind of the arc of technology and how often early on the technology is able to just do something and it's successful just because I was able to do something. So you think back to like the Gordon Gecko cell phone. The thing was like the size of a shoebox. It took literally ten hours to charge, and you got about ten minutes of talk time, and it cost hundreds, if not thousands, of dollars. But by golly, you could be, you know, uh, on the beach on the phone and look as cool as the name. God, I can't is remember. Wolf Martin oh, Sheen is that? No, it, is? it wasn't Martin Sheen. Can't oh, remember Mike Douglas. Yeah, yeah Michael Douglas. Thank exactly. you. Yeah, there we go. You can look as cool as Michael Douglas uh, on the beach with a, with a cell phone. So you could think of the arc of cell phones in the beginning. They're not often very accessible, very easy to use, or very cumbersome, um, but they're just able to do something. Now, I think almost any successful technology still, back to Jacob's point, meets or solves a problem, addresses a problem. Um, there's a need for it, right? It's not just technology for the sake of technology. But over time, technology gets, you know, it, it gets better, but typically the way the curve goes next is how many features can I cram into this, right? And it's also like, can I make it accessible? Can I make it cheaper? Can I make it small enough? Um, and then you could think of like the Motorola StarTAC phones or um, some of the early Blackberries and stuff. They got smaller, they got cheaper. And then it was like, how many bullet points can I put on the front of the box? It does this, it does that, it does that. And then eventually the kind of the third phase technology on enter is where it's really easy to use and the experience matters more than how many features. And so if you look at the very first iPhone that came out, it didn't do 3G data. It didn't have all the apps. There was a bunch of stuff it didn't do. And a lot of people laughed at it for that. It was expensive. Um, it didn't have a keyboard, but it was like this really amazing experience. And I think in a lot of ways, I was working or really coming around this backwards here. I was at Google at the time as a designer and saw how that really changed. That was a big aha moment for Silicon Valley and kind of the tech companies of, oh, the experience matters. I get it now. We understand that has value. Um and kind of reorienting how we built products or where we place value of the different people involved in that. So it's a long-winded
1: interjection. No, it's um, okay. That's a good a good thing to throw in there, and we'll we'll definitely come back to that. There was the second part of Christoph's question too about when you do the Al Pacino just when you th- I thought I was out pull me back in? Well, well, do we the, do that <laughs> Godfather. You're back to farming. You thought you escaped, and now you're there.
2: We we've got a dude that we like around here named Bill, right?
1: Mm. oh they're openlander
2: bill (laughs) openlander yeah we've got a list
0: that's not a real person (laughs) right we just Um, we just
1: you just made up that name. yeah
0: no it's 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 totally a fake person oh good
1: Um, i want bill listening being like how dare you abuse (laughs) my family's heritage on air
2: but but the name bill actually holds meaning here at nori because when we say bill it represents a persona that you have in mind when you're thinking about designing a product for them
0: yeah i mean yeah so trying to go back to your original question about growing up in the sticks (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, I, I, I knew some bills back in the day. So my, my dad- is literally
1: um, chewing on a piece of grass right yeah, now and sticking it off your
0: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My dad bought five acres of land in Evansville that was a cornfield. And everything around it is still a cornfield. So all of our neighbors are farmers to one degree or another. Farmers? Are we saying farmers? Are we saying growers now? Or doesn't matter. Growers what, includes, whatever the label
1: includes is. ranchers and people raising animals too. That's That's right. Yes,
2: are we cutting this? No. <laughs>
1: Why would you cut it? Yeah. What? 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 What is this? This is term definitely present? one of our internal debates that goes on. Of like, what's the what's we, the modern term? They come I, up on the podcast too. We say that's, different that's things. The
2: listeners. Yeah, and I think if you're a listener and you have preference for what is the best term, I think we want to draw a really large tent over anyone. And I think if anyone who is sequestering carbon dioxide in their soils, and so we look at that one sort of, what's the consulting term? MISI, mutually exclusive, collectively exhaustive. And then there's non-MISI. So non-MISI would say, you've got growers, you've got ranchers, you've got farmers, you've got food producers, you've got conservationists. And if- you sort of throw all those people in a large bucket. Um, we've just about covered it. The question is, how do, how do we get the right umbrella? And I think that's still up for debate of the right term that we're using.
1: I think growers is just food producers and then farmers or, or croppers is also used interchangeably with farmers sometimes, but, and then people who raise, yeah.
3: So J- Jacob's dad, you, you had some land. <laughs> <laughs> Bring it back around.
1: Yeah. So
0: yeah, go, going back to this started with Bill kind of like growing up around the Bills of the world. I, I didn't think, no, to answer your question, that I would circle back to designing something for somebody like Bill. But I do like solving problems for people that don't look like me. It's it's fun. Um, you get to walk a mile in somebody else's shoes. That's one of the really fun things about experience design as a profession is you have to not necessarily be an expert, but you have to ramp up pretty quick about things that you know nothing about. I'm um, just kind of getting into the weeds of, man, what what is he doing all day long? Or why, why is that a problem for him? Or how can I empathize with this situation? It's just a really fun role-playing activity. And I think we do a decent job here at Nori making sure that if we're solving problems, we're solving them for Bill and not for us. And that's why we have personas, going back to kind of the point you started on. There's a list on the wall over here. It was a failed activity, but we were Assessing some different designs and we literally have a column that says things Bill won't like, things Bill will like. Pretty rudimentary like rubric for evaluating your designs. But I mean, I think it gets to the heart of what human centered design is and what we try to do with the things that we make.
1: You're very famous around the office, too, for your whiteboard domination skills. I have seen
0: every piece of
1: of real estate (laughs) occupied by some important nugget of information that has been visually mapped in a way that I can make sense of it. There's many, many examples. Can you make sense
0: here. of it? This is a question if, I have <laughs> most days. <laughs> I,
1: if I wanted to, but I have never wanted to. <laughs> no, I mean yeah. some of it some of it is pretty intuitive. You're going through screens saying uh, if they do this, then this is just big flow charts, but visually oriented for, for an app or a platform.
0: Yeah. I mean people have people have different skills. I think one of the really critical things about design is that there's a storytelling component to it that's really critical. Because you can throw a bunch of facts at somebody and say like, hey, I know that these are indisputable things and you can't connect with that emotionally. Um, But if somebody tells you a story, you're instantly there. You can feel it. All of a sudden, the stakes are real. So we spend a lot of time visualizing what that is. Um, And we use the term experience, which is super nebulous. It can mean a lot of different things. At the end of the day, these are all just vehicles to communicate what that overall narrative looks like. And at Nori, it's a very exciting, interesting narrative. I think it changes a lot. But yeah, we're constantly rewriting different chapters of the book and trying to look at it from a different perspective, uh, whether that be a different marketplace participant or whether it's just a different flavor of Bill, because we're definitely lumping all the Bills of the world into one big bucket.
1: Different flavors of Bill. <laughs> yeah. Well, speaking <laughs> of stories, should we maybe let Michael uh, introduce himself over here? Sure. It's been, it's been a while. Are you just, you're in the bullpen? I'm, nice, I'm nice enjoying join. Yeah, yeah, this is
3: good. No, my my name is Michael Leggett, and I'm from Houston originally. And so, my my dad is an architect, uh, and then eventually I went into lighting design. My mom is is a, an artist and has done a, a lot of different things um, in her uh, career. And I so I kind of I often draw to that to say like I really grew up thinking of the form and function of things, and I think that that you know I always kind of had a somewhat of an engineer's mind of how do things work, taking things apart. Uh, I remember at like age six, I had this really cool programmable remote control car and I took the whole thing apart and tried to put it back together and had about 60 screws left over. <laughs> thing never worked again to, to <laughs> say the least. Um, so I, I've I've kind of carried that with me and I've just kind of been on this journey for a long time following that passion and, and looking for the right like label or right kind of outlet for it. I think I... Uh, ended up in college and ended up doing a computer science degree. Uh, my first couple of years were actually electrical engineering. I took a year off of school. Uh, worked for a startup that was trying to put medical records online in 2000. That went bust uh, with when the the bubble popped. Um, came back, started my own company to finish paying for school, where I uh, basically made websites and web apps for people. Uh, moved out to California after college and started looking around for a job. Got tired of working on my own and. Uh, got really lucky. I got a job at Google as a designer. And I really feel like I became a designer at Google. So was there for 10 years, uh, most of that in the Bay Area, some of it up here in Seattle. And I worked on uh, things from Google Finance. So I led Gmail for five years. I started Google Inbox. Um, I worked on Android for a few years, um, helped start Project Fi. I uh, worked on the massive Google-wide redesign. I worked on a bunch of different stuff there and around a lot of really talented people. And then I spent uh, the last few years at Facebook working on Messenger and then on kind of large, complex ad systems. And I think really the turning point for me was when um, this last election, uh, well, actually, my climate change story, um, I warned you all this was going to be verbose. Uh, was, I, I think it really started with a uh, Start saying, 300 million years ago.
2: Yeah, that's right. As a present. Thank you so for I'm saying y'all. <laughs> you don't say it enough. I'm glad the Texan in you comes Oh, out. yeah, yeah.
3: No, that's definitely. Well, y'all is like the small group and then all y'all is a large inclusive group. Um, so four people is y'all? Yeah, that's that's about that's okay. about right. I think when you get up to about somewhere around 15 or 20, it's all y'all. Um, so uh, I think it started with seeing an inconvenient truth and that really kind of blew my mind um, and feeling really moved by that. And not really sure what to do with it though and that was kind of in the back of my mind for a while and then uh, increasingly you know i was donating to things and voting on it but I just didn't feel like you know it really it killed me that it wasn't brought up in the debates even once in the presidential debates um the most recent change. ones, yeah the most yeah. recent ones yeah. um i don't think of much in the previous ones either so when the election happened what happened i did two things i had a, a good friend of mine uh, Margaret stewart who's a design vp I had Facebook, and she created a hundred day plan and I thought that was really inspiring and so I created a hundred day plan for myself and of kind of what was I going to do in the first hundred days and the two things i the two climate change related things so I just read more um was go vegetarian and tell Facebook I was leaving in a year to go work on climate change. I had no idea what that was going to look like, but I kind of set that out, and they were willing to let me stay, even though I basically was quitting a year in advance um and uh, so that's what I did in March. I left and then I started talking to a bunch of different people, um, a bunch of different companies and really liked the people and kind of what y'all are doing here. And felt like I've learned a ton just in talking to y'all and was super excited to kind of join up with Nori and see what I can do uh, to bring my experience to this really important problem space.
1: Definitely. And you occupy such a unique role. In fact, I'm not even sure personally how to categorize you because Sometimes you end up working on things that strike me as quite technical, but then you chime in on a lot of creative aspects of the business too. So do you see yourself as a sort of uh bridge here? Is it a form of communication just done more visually? How do you, how do you <laughs> describe what you do here? What would you say you do what here? You say, I talk to the engineers. <laughs> um, yeah. Reference noted.
3: I, I think that like uh back to what one of the things Jacob says, I like storytelling. I think a lot of, I mean, you—you, you, I think you could distill a lot of what we do, what any of us do, is down to storytelling, right? And it's about either telling the right story to investors, telling the right story to each other when we're trying to like just share information and like get on the same page and move the ball down the field. To grab another metaphor, uh, yeah. telling stories to our customers, right? Who, who are we? What are we? What are they doing here? What are they? Could they gain from participating in Nori And is it legit and credibility? And so I think that that kind of is one of the connecting pieces of tissue. Um, I'm also one that has like strong opinions, but I try to hold them loosely. And so I, I'm very comfortable sharing. Uh, I almost always have thoughts on things, but I, I try to, and I, I like kind of getting involved in things. So I, I think I tend to, you know, dip my toe into any pond that I, I can see. Uh, But I try to like add value and then get out and and try to like be clear. Am I like responsible for this in a a certain way or am I just kind of throwing some ideas over the fence? Because I love love, like rich debate and discussion no matter what the topic, uh, no matter if I'm leading or if I'm just, you know, throwing some ideas and then really trusting people to kind of do the right thing with that.
1: Drawing um, ideas, weakly held. I think in general, more people would be better off if they adopted that. Because many people have strong opinions that are strongly held that are not ultimately justified. Where there's only a couple positions that I know enough about that you would have a hard time talking me out of, either whether yeah. that's politically or, or something else. But I try everything else to be like, oh, I guess, I mean empirically, if that's better, okay, I'll go with that. And uh, I try to do that. It isn't easy though, because sometimes your identity gets tied up in that. Yeah, totally. And once it, that happens, it's it's very hard to change absolutely. someone's mind. Absolutely.
3: Trying to check your ego at the door. I mean, I think it's really important to have certain ideas should be strongly held. Like we, sure, we shouldn't yeah. kill each other and should take care of the plan. Uh, <laughs> but I, I think that, um, especially in making products, I think it's really important to be flexible. There's so many times that I was so sure of something and it just turned out to be wrong. Um, and it's really hard to know even it's, it's often you don't know if you're right or wrong. So, um, it's, it's easy. I just don't think it's, um, helpful to think, you know, uh, and it, I think it really excludes people from being involved in stuff. So I think a lot of, I think the other thing, I, if I could say the second thing beyond telling good stories, um, is trying to pull people into telling that story together and not taking over. Um, and I think that that's, uh, that's something I'm still kind of growing and trying to get better at. I think we're always still growing and getting better at things, but how do you pull people out there because other people know things. Um, And this deal, I've got a great team of background and expertise. And um, so I think that's also really important.
1: Definitely. I don't know if you you had something you wanted to say, Christoph. I want to introduce something new. We have talked about writing an article for a while and it didn't quite happen. But Jacob, I believe you taught me this uh, conceptual schema that I've been using for thinking about design. But if you think about an x-axis that, you know, Uh, It's just, just a line basically on one side of the line, there is abstracting and on the other side of the line is teaching. Could you, uh, could you explain how that works and how, uh, give us an example perhaps?
0: Yeah, sure. Uh, So teach, yeah, teaching versus abstracting. Um, I think a lot of it gets down to not lying to your users, but also not making it more difficult for them to do what they're trying to do. So it's kind of, it's, it's a line that you flirt with, but fundamentally the idea behind teaching is, hey, I'm gonna tell you exactly how this is working, be as transparent as possible, kind of spell it all out. Here's the disclaimer at the bottom, dig into it, like everything. Customize the all
1: tape. the options if you want.
0: Yeah. Abstracting is this idea that, hey, maybe you know how to drive a car, but you don't really know how it works under the hood, and that's fine. Like you don't need to know how to fix your engine in order to drive your car to work, um, which is a horrible example to use for this company. But yeah, (laughs) like I I think you get where I'm going with that. It's kind of like figuring out in a situation by situation basis, is the juice worth the squeeze? Like, I'm going to try to teach somebody how something works, but to what end? Um, Do they really need to know that? If not, and it gets in the way of them accomplishing what they're trying to do, skip it, abstract it. And this is where we can start talking about mental models Uh, mental model being the idea that people have a certain structure in their head for how they think about certain ideas. And one of the easiest things in design, well, not easy to to do, but it's kind of like a good place to start is, well, I've got this problem over here. It's a kind of a new thing, but it's somewhat similar to this other thing that people know something about. So I'm going to make it look like that other thing. And then hopefully people will know what to do. To me, that's kind of and an easier way to solve that problem without... It's
1: like mimicry, almost.
0: Yeah. Um, you're, you're, not, you're not lying. You're, you're being transparent um, about the things that are important. And then I think you can make that distinction, not even just on a case-by-case basis, but there could be smaller parts of that story that you're teaching or abstracting away. Um, so one of the things that we've been talking about a lot here at Noria around new blockchain concepts is, you know, what what is the value in teaching... Bill, going back to Bill, like how much does he need to know about blockchain? Um, How much should we teach him versus how much should we just abstract away? So an example is Bill signing up for an account. Does he need to know what a private and public key pair are in order to make his account? Probably not. We can probably find a better way to figure out like how to educate him on, on how that works. Maybe Bill just has an account and we kind of put a layer on top of it that makes him feel like he's just interacting with a regular bank account and everything else related to the blockchain is, is hidden or buried, um, as one idea, or maybe there's bad things about that. Maybe Bill needs to know that he has this unique pair key because he's responsible for his identity in a way that we're not managing. Uh, so there's legal implications too. And we have to
1: evaluate
0: the pros and cons for, for any situation.
1: Sure. And if Nori were the custodian of these assets and ultimately had discretion over whether they were moved or spent or something like that, there's a lot of company risk. But in some cases, it's definitely easier for the user to have this be something very familiar. So if we're using the language of mimicry, you have a conventional account, someone logs in with the password, and maybe it's like PayPal, where they have a certain amount of money or Nori tokens in that account and they can access it that way without having to digitally sign a transaction with their private key. But it opens up all of these crazy questions, all of which, one of the things I like about design too that I've been noticing is that one of these decisions that's made upstream just goes all the way downstream in ways that you can't necessarily always predict where it goes. Outside of design too, it could end up in legal or some other aspect of the business. So it's really, it's really everything.
3: Yeah, definitely easily touches it. I mean, I think that this is speaking to kind of like, I think a successful product, one one aspect of a successful product is that it's, you know, kind of simple um, and simple. I, I think of simple as being kind of like intuitive, but also, and like fitting into people's lives, but also respectful um, and kind of honoring the expectations you have as a, as a customer. Like you can easily go too far in abstracting or in hiding you know, complexity. And all of a sudden someone's like, what do you mean? Like, you know, you have my entire address book or like, you know, you have this information or you've published this or, you know, these private messages are actually public or, you know, all kinds of things. So I think it's really important to, you know, kind of walk that line as well um, to make sure that you're making things as simple. You're not not, like to steal from uh, Steve Krug, another guy who's uh, written some famous books around design. Don't make people think really is like a really good kind of a shortcut for make things simple. But at the same time, they should, at the end of the day, like have a correct kind of correct assumptions around like what it is they're getting into and what they've committed themselves to and and what's going on with that. Another favorite of mine is privacy isn't about making everything private. Privacy is about you having uh, the correct expectations and control over what's private and what's public. So I, I think that that's, you know, one ask. And I think simple is one you know i the other two pillars i i I'll often draw on is uh it's actually useful uh and it's well made um and i think you know useful is both it solves a real problem it does so in a way that's either not solved well or uh not not as nicely solved today um so kind of playing to your strengths and then something is well made it's you know reliable it's robust it's beautiful and other things like that um but those are kind of the three pillars of great product great design in my mind, um, is kind of useful,
2: simple, and, and well-made. And that seems particularly hard when you're dealing with something that's super complex like nori. You were describing earlier today that you had a metaphor you wanted to drop which was using a three-layer cake. cake analogy.
1: <laughs> oh, you're joining the club, man.
2: Yeah. Oh yeah, Are, no, no. Boy, I yeah. I already had a membership. Um Yeah, he's drunk the Kool-Aid. You're you're in. How how does the cake work? What's what's that about? You you eat it.
3: I like cake. I like cake. Um a good band.
2: I I think that um
3: So I think often in building products, you think of kind of front-end and back-end. And I think of blockchain um, and, you know, the Nori token. Like these are not like bullet points in the front of the box. Like now with blockchain, um, like this is like part of our infrastructure, right? This is like for good reason, right? And there's there's reasons we're using these things um, that address real needs um, in the product and in the marketplace. So I think often building products is kind of front-end, back-end. Uh, but I think there's a third layer to the cake here, and this comes up more in, somewhat sometimes in like what's called service design, but in basically kind of the methodologies. This is the word we use for uh, how do you actually abstract all the different ways of capturing and storing CO2 uh, or greenhouse gases, and how do you take each one of those different ways of capturing and storing CO2 and build up an entire kind of uh, uh, you know instruction manual for how do we measure that? How do we like verify it? Uh, how is that actually participate in the market alongside all the other different methodologies? So a ton is a ton is a ton. Um, and the, the whole, the brilliance I think behind the ton is a ton is a ton, where basically we're kind of methodology and project agnostic when to, to buyers, um, is I think that that scales a lot better. If you're thinking kind of long term, a buyer can come into the market and say, I need to pull down, you know, 50 megatons. I need to pull this down. Like, you know, Take my money. <laughs> and I wanna like know that it's credible and it's being done right. Uh, and I might wanna be able to tell a good story about that with my supply chain and other things. There's ways of accomplishing that, but it like greatly reduces the kind of uh, complexity of actually fulfilling that basic need or that basic goal. And so I, I think that that's a really important layer of it. And so I think that design is not just designing the front end. It's also thinking about the back end and thinking about how that affects what we can do with the product. Um, And it's also, I think, thinking about kind of these methodologies and that's like, how do we best design the process to work? How do we think of like, you know, I'm very much thinking of like, is, is Bill going to actually going to fill out all these forms? Is he going to give us all this data? Is that data going to be enough? Like that is like right at the core of what we're doing um, as to whether or not this is going to fly. And so I think it's paramount that we get that right, that we're collecting enough data to satisfy the buyer's. But also doing so in a way that's easy for Bill. You know, that's back to that simple pillar. It's got to fit into his life, right? We can't be like uh, grossly unrealistic. It's like, oh yeah, Bill's going to do all these things. He's going to fill out all these forms, and they're going to they're complex. But uh, it's going to be great. He's so excited about. Uh, what we're excited about. Well, no, Bill's probably not as excited about it as we are. Weren't we talking about uh, something
1: like the attrition rate, the more screens you have to click through to get to the end of something?
3: I don't know what... I think that's a there's a fallacy around that, I think. Um, I think it's more important. It's a very common held thing of like, how many clicks? Oh, that one's fewer clicks, so it's better. Uh-huh. I think it's far more important that each click is obvious. So whichever one has the most obvious clicks, and that kind of goes back to not having to think. Uh, but certainly at some point, you know, you're going to get tired um, unless the carrot's big enough at the end of that. So um, you know, how many screens I think there's, uh, also interesting. I have like little nuggets of you, you over a career in design, you like build up these little like theories that I don't know, like sometimes they're, you know, valid sometimes they're, uh, but the idea that like, uh, if you're checking out, um, an e commerce, um, or like if you're trying to book a hotel, it's better to put that all on one screen. Um, or you look at like Amazon, like people scroll more than they click, you know, whether that's still true or not, that's definitely still something kind of in the back of my mind. So, all these things interplay. And I think that uh, it kind of, it always depends on who the customer is, where they're at, you know, how motivated they are. You know, it's just, there's there's no uh, one size fits all to any of these rules.
2: That's an excellent answer. I feel extremely lucky to have you on the team. One of the things that I also appreciate about you is I think you get like an emotional reaction when you see bad design or bad product <laughs> <laughs> uh, I can confirm yes <laughs> oh
1: man
3: i I don't know if that makes me happy or sad not <laughs> you uh, yeah no that's i've I've been told that i i don't hide it uh i don't I don't yeah. hide it well at all yeah, where were we going with that
2: I, I don't know, I was just sort of flattering you a little bit, Michael, i definitely <laughs> you know i think I think it's nice that we in some way have a design team that are becoming. I don't know if subject matter expert is the right way to put it, but you guys are really knowledgeable in regenerative agriculture now and all the sort of ins and outs and data collection sides of like, how can we make these methodologies and how do we make it all work? Oh yeah. And so it's been a kind of phenomenal learning journey. And so I'd be curious, this is a question for both of you, sort of what have you learned about this space that surprised you from kind of a design perspective, or is there anything unique about what Nori is doing that uncovered pieces that you wouldn't have thought you'd uncover.
1: Let me append to that too, because we often say that we're taking a software approach to these markets in this space. Is that, is that part of what defines how you look at that or or not so much?
3: So I think we. I, I'm going to suggest we answer Christoph's question first, and then we come back to yours. So I think those are two pretty different questions. Um, so anything that surprised us, and then a software approach. Um, and since I'm talking, I'll go 1st <laughs> I think there's tons that, uh, I mean, I'm learning every day and I, I feel like it's one of those things where the more you learn, the more you realize how much more there is to learn. I think that um, just the idea of kind of mitigation versus actually like um, pulling carbon down, like that's just that framing. That was one of the first things from like, I, uh, a mutual friend introduced me to, to some people here at Nori and I started listening to the podcast. It was one of the first things I did. And just that framing was kind of like a smack upside the head. Like, of course, that makes total sense. And so, and then kind of, I feeling like, you know, the, the curtains were drawn and I could actually see uh, what was going on, that so much of the policy and so many things, you know, an activity and press today is larger around mitigation and not much about actually trying to uh, reverse things. I mean, that was, there's all kinds of ahas like that, that surprise me and delight me uh, because I feel that much closer to actually, you know, having an impact. Um, and uh, I, mean, I don't know, there's, I just feel like there's tons of things like that.
0: Yeah, <laughs> as I stare at Jacob. Good point. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah, you definitely set me up there, and I just whipped it. Uh, so, <laughs> I I think for me, when I started this gig, I didn't realize how in depth and how long people would sit around a table and talk about soil, and how mad people would get when you would call it dirt. It's just like it's dirt, man. I, it can't be that complicated. But the, there's so much behind. Uh, soil science. Can I say soil science? Yeah, You sure. absolutely yeah. can. Have we had a soil scientist on the on yeah, the podcast?
1: Yeah, we've had at least one, maybe even a couple. I'm trying to remember.
2: Well, Dave Montgomery. And uh, spoiler alert, the next guest will be a soil scientist as well. Actually, <laughs> she's a biologist. Mm.
0: Yeah, lots of questions for that so person. So she studies dirt?
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> Rage face. Not
2: JPEG so. there.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's, I, I guess I was a little taken aback around how much of it is... Um, like not theoretical, but it's uh, based on a model that's not an exact science. There's a lot of wiggle room. There's a lot of interpretation. Um, it can only be so accurate, and we're trying to make something that looks very accurate and is very transparent. So um, there's a lot of kind of figuring out. Well, you know how how far can we push this part of the narrative? Um, how true is that actually? How how do we need to protect ourselves? And what does our you know insurance policy look like for this and that? Um, it. Opens up all these really interesting avenues to talk about design in a way that's very specific, like way more specific than I'm building an e-commerce site and I'm designing for people that need to go on there and buy diapers in bulk. I don't know, terrible example. It's it's so niche. There's so much you have to know. And every single day I'm humbled to work around people that know so much about it and are willing to give their time to kind of explain it to me at the four dummies level. Which Which is great, uh, I think the the more you work on something, the more you try to articulate what it is you're trying to do. you kind of get a better grasp for it, and then somebody comes along and says, "Oh, you actually just got to level two, and there's <laughs> there's five hundred levels uh, so good job getting to level two, but now I'll teach you the next round of this thing. uh Peel back the next layer of the onion to join the metaphor crew, yeah. That was a good one. I got that one. Cool.
1: Go <laughs> yeah, actually, uh, the way that you answered those questions made me think that my uh, appending to that question was totally inappropriate because it was a totally different question that was asked. But I That's do wanna okay. know about the software The software approach. Is that, is that a term that even makes sense to use? Because cause we, we say this internally sometimes, people have applied it to us externally. Is this the correct way to think about what is potentially wrong with some of these spaces? I think uh, to me it's not helpful. But it's just like it's too broad.
3: No, I, I think it. I suspect there's there's other people. Like it's useful in so far as like I felt like my skills uh, were applicable here. Like we are building software, right? We are building screens and interfaces for people to use. Um, we are building processes and and all these things. So in so far as that's true, as opposed to someone that's just out there trying to find a better way to like you know you know either advocacy or. Um, trying to convince people to use a different fertilizer or trying to like do like raw science. I, like sometimes Christoph will say like, you know, and now we do science. Um, so, I mean, I think that there's, it feels as a, you know, I think a broad term for my background is like a technologist, right? Like uh, in working on like software, or maybe some that work in hardware, it can feel really daunting if you want to work on climate change to feel like, well, I don't have like a PhD in something like, how can I work on climate change? I guess I guess I should just like write the editor at my local paper or like vote or donate to this cause or, and like for me, like that just was not cutting it. Um, And so uh, insofar as like we are working on things that are familiar to me um, and a lot of things that are not, and it's actually applicable to climate change, that's like super exciting and and relevant. And I think that that's relevant to people that are used to working on climate change that aren't maybe used to things that have anything to do with software being applicable to climate change. So I can imagine that being useful for others that are kind of around this this ecosystem. But to me, it's just like, yeah, that's cool. We're working on software. Okay. Um, it doesn't actually help me like in my day to day. I don't find that like a useful framing per se. And
1: your story reminds me of uh, Paul too. Uh, his story. He was also looking for a software approach to climate change and was asking friends being like, why is there nothing? Yeah, And then heard about Nori and then you know, now he's our CTO. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I guess it bodes well for our recruiting future, huh?
3: Yeah. No, I think that that's, uh, I don't think we'll have any problem with recruiting people as things, you know, take off. We're mm-hmm. very, very bullish on that. That's good. I
1: think uh, we have a pretty nice cap there to call it. Any, any last words? Anything we didn't cover? I think it's a pretty good intro to design and and how to think about this.
3: You know, the other thing that I hope we're going to start doing a lot more is we need to start talking to people and showing them, you know, things, um, getting feedback and doing like kind of user research and stuff. I think I think Jake, I was really impressed when I came in how much thought Jacob had done around the different um, personas and the, and the way kind of um, you know information would flow between them to get things done. And I think that we've we need to start doing more to talk to people as things start to become a little bit more clear, and we have more to show. And so I think there's a lot of avenues through which we can do that. But certainly, I wanted to call out to our listeners, if there's other people that'd be interested in, uh, that feel like they would um, actually be a part of our marketplace, that would like to uh, sit down and kind of uh, look at some stuff we're doing, and, and uh, see if they can accomplish certain tasks, and see uh, how uh, how well Jacob and I are doing and the rest of the product team, that would be great. So feel free to reach out at hello at nori.com and let us know um, that you'd be uh, be up for doing that.
1: That's a great idea. Having feedback like that sounds quite valuable. After all, you're trying to build for them. Yeah. So they should probably be in the room.
3: Absolutely. No, it's a, it's super important. Um, and I think especially it's something like this where you're not working, you know, you're not gonna instantly have millions of users. It's hard to use data to inform design. So you really need to kind of lean more on the qualitative uh, research methods.
1: Hmm.
2: It's great. I would like to say Paul's obligatory message, which is if you like what we're putting out there and you want to support our project, go to republic.co slash nori and find out all the details on how you can invest.
1: Well, thanks for being here with us. If you like the show, please share it with your friends, rate it on your podcast app of choice. Visit us on Medium. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Anywhere else, Nori.com has everything, and uh, thanks for listening.